Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA, and today we're tackling a topic that was suggested by some of our members, and that is tips for dealing with tides. We know that a lot of our members don't have substantial boating experience, and even those that do are often coming from lakes and have never really had to deal with tides until they start their great loop. So we have brought in Carl Weber. He is with At The Helm, and Captain Carl is one of our very valued sponsors. As always, I do want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And another of those businesses that support the Great Loop, of course, is at the helm. So Captain Carl Weber, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Kim. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to see you coming to us from uh, the beautiful Keys, from Key Largo. So we appreciate that. And I know you're between deliveries. And those of you who don't know Carl, um, At The Helm does deliveries and training with AGLCM members and others as well. So we thank you for supporting the organization and our members. Um, so I've given a little bit about you, but tell us you know, a little bit more about yourself and your boating experience. Sure. I'm very lucky. My dad's older brother and younger brother were both boaters. Uh, my uncle Bill had a big motor yacht and he kind of, as I got older, he got bigger boats. The younger brother, my uncle Bob, is a sailor and he taught me how to sail when I was a little kid. He's had a sailboat all my life and I'm really lucky because now he started being my mate on some of my trips. So it's been great to make even more memories with my uncle helping me out. Yeah, that, that's so I spent most of my life around boats and, uh, it's just been a gradual progression. I started out as a dive instructor and then moved into being a boat captain because that's more stable. The boat mm. leaves plenty of times without an instructor, but never without a captain. And <laughs> figured out real quick that driving a boat's kind of fun. I enjoyed it, but I like traveling more. So getting into deliveries allowed me to see lots of different places while still driving boats. Yeah, and I know that you are very busy these days with deliveries because we, we uh, tried a few times to schedule this and... Uh, let me know next time you're coming through Charleston. We got to actually meet face-to-face -face a month or two ago when you were coming through on a delivery slash training run. So that was a lot of fun. Um, so as I said, we're talking today about tides and a lot of our members have been primarily lake boaters. And I think this probably came up after our spring rendezvous when um, during a Q&A panel with some gold loopers, um, I think one of the questions was along the lines of, you know, what kind of caught you by surprise on the loop. And one of them who had been from Chicago and, and mostly boated on Lake Michigan said the tides. So I think that's, that's where we got the request for this topic. Um, so obviously not the whole loop is tidal. Tell us a little bit about what parts of the loop are tidal um, and you know, kind of what to expect from that. Absolutely. So tides obviously affected by the sun and the moon. There are three types of tides. There are semi-diurnal tides, which means you get two high tides and two low tides every day. Those occur anywhere there's big ocean. Places like lakes, as you said, have no tides. You have diurnal tides, which mean you get one high tide and one low tide every day. The Gulf of Mexico is a good example of that. So you get a little bit. And then there's one other one that you don't see very often, which is a mix of those, 
where you get a really high tide, a really low tide, a not quite so high tide, and a not quite so low tide. So the tides affect us mostly at the dock. When we're tied up and anchored up, if there's a fixed dock and you tie up at mid-tide and the tide goes up, your, your boat keeps going up and the lines aren't loose enough. Or the reverse happens, the tide goes down and you're hanging there by your lines. So it's important when you get to a dock to figure out whether you have fixed docks or floating docks. Floating docks, tie your lines as tight as you can. They go up and down with the tide and with your boat, piece of cake. If they have fixed docks, the water and the boat go up, but the dock doesn't move. So you wanna make sure your lines are tied appropriately so that your boat can go up and down with the tides and not have a problem at the dock. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was chatting for whatever reason on this, this topic um, with my adult daughter who grew up here in Charleston, where we have uh, big tidal swings and we have the uh, two, two highs and two lows a day. And she was really surprised having boated her whole life to hear that not all areas are like that. So, um, you know, talk to us, let's, let's start a little bit in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, You know, once a day, how big are the tidal swings? Is it really a concern in the Gulf as much as it is on the East Coast? No, not as much. The tides, like I said, are affected by the sun and moon. If it wasn't for the continents, everything would be smooth and easy. But because you have big continents in the way, they block the water from moving, which is essentially what causes the tides. So the Gulf of Mexico, we see a little bit, but not a whole lot. And the closer to the equator you are, the closer you are to where the sun has less effect, then the tides are diminished. So in Florida, two, two and a half feet on the East Coast, not so much. You get up into the Bay of Fundy and you get like 18 feet. Uh Charleston being in the middle, you get your eight feet. So the further north you go, the more the tides influence you. Unless, of course, you're in a lake or in a canal system or in a river where the tides really don't affect you at all. Right. So, you know, assuming a lake boater is starting the Great Loop, so starting from the Great Lakes or anywhere south of there on the inland rivers, they're right. first going to hit tidal areas in the Gulf, of course. Um, yeah. Where, you know, we kind of talked about the Gulf, it's only a couple feet maybe, and the east coast of Florida. Where are they really going to start to notice that tidal swing? Um, and where should they start to pay more attention to it from a fixed dock perspective? Um really once you start getting out of florida the north coast of florida starting to get into georgia and south carolina is where you start hitting the first big changes mm-hmm. so following through on that you know and, and the whole the way the sun and the moon affected as you get further from the equator you don't see as big a shift as you move further north from here for whatever reason that is is it you know as you're hitting the chesapeake uh, you know where does it become less of a concern Once you get into the Erie Canal Uh and start making your way into the lakes, because, yeah, you know, New York, New Jersey, they have good tide swings still. Uh So, you know, there's several concerns, I guess, when dealing with big tide swings. You know, one is the change in the water depth, obviously, if you have a deeper keel. Um, Another is, as you already mentioned, and I want to dig into that a little bit more, but um, if you're at a fixed dock. Um, But another is the current that's created by that water moving so let's kind of start with um from a depth perspective for for loopers who perhaps have a deeper keel um what are some suggestions you might have for them as they start to get into georgia and south carolina um where the you know you can have 
eight feet less depth at low tide than you had at high tide. How should they deal with that? How should they time their travel if they've got concerns about that? Well, obviously the easiest answer is stay somewhere where you know you're safe. If you can pick a good weather day and go outside, a lot of people just like to skip Georgia and, you know, come into South Carolina and Charleston or a big inlet, as opposed to some of the smaller inlets where you tend to get more shoaling. Uh -huh. So the first option is go outside to where you don't really have to worry about it. If you absolutely really feel the need to keep moving, then you definitely want to check the tides. The professionals recommend that you pick a half tide or going higher so that if you get stuck, the tide's going to keep coming in. Hopefully it'll lift you off and you get to keep going. If you come in on a falling tide and you get stuck, the tide's going to keep going out and you're going to be stuck more and more and more and more for a longer period of time until the tide starts rising again. So you want to check the tide, see when the last low tide was, check when the next high tide is, try to check and see how much of a tidal difference there is because it varies in the different places and the different inlets that you'll be going through. Right. And, um, you know, shoaling, of course, does change the picture. Um, and, and shoaling is a constantly a constant battle and constantly changing. In general, and I was shocked when I learned this, but the Atlantic Intracoastal is supposed to be dredged to 12 feet at low tide. Those of us who travel it know that that's not always the case. So um, from your recent experiences on the Intracoastal, um, you know, in, in theory, loopers should have enough water below them, even at low tide, as long as they stay in the channel. Yes. Is that the case in most places right now? Or are there some areas uh, keeping in mind that if you're listening or watching to this, you know, a year from now, two years from now, this could be totally different. Um, but right now with your recent experiences, where are the places of concern at lower tides? Is there shoaling that we should be aware of? Well, as you look at your charts, a lot of the charts will tell you places to be careful of. Obviously, the bigger the inlet, the more commercial it is. Charleston, Jacksonville, Savannah, some of the bigger spots, they keep really clear and really clean. Some of the smaller ones, you got to be a little more careful. One of the things that I like to do is call the local towboat US. If I find I'm going into New Smyrna Beach at Ponce Inlet, I know there's been some shoaling issues there. I'll call the local towboat US and go, hey, I'm coming in this channel. I haven't been in here before or I haven't been in here lately. Can you tell me, is there anything I need to know or avoid? And those guys are happy to share their information. They go, hey, today you want to avoid the greens. We got a little shoaling on the green side, hug closer to the reds. Or they'll say, hug the greens until you get around the first curve and then stay closer to the red side. So those guys give the best advice because they're in it every day. Anytime there's a storm, stuff changes. So even though your charts look good, next week a storm rolls through and everything's different again. So my best advice is when you're getting ready to go, call the local towboat US guy. Hey, we're leaving Savannah. We're headed for Georgetown. Is there anything we need to know? Any spots we need to stop and watch out for? And they always give good advice. That, that's a great tip. And that is good to know. I've also heard people say that, um, if you kind of see the towboat U.S. boat just hanging out somewhere, it's likely to be a, a spot where they know they might be needed soon. <laughs> Absolutely. So exercise some extra caution in those areas. 
Um, yeah. yeah I, I think this is probably a good place to take a quick break. I do want to come back and cover um, the way this affects the current and some tips on that, because here in Charleston, it can make for some interesting docking um, when the current is ripping through during the tidal change. Um, and I also want to talk again a little bit about um, uh, anchoring as well as tying up to a fixed dock sure. and how the tides are going to affect that. So we will be back in a moment. PropTalk is an Annapolis-based company founded in the summer of 2005 by active Chesapeake Bay boaters. The company produces PropTalk Magazine, a monthly newsprint magazine focused on Chesapeake Bay power boating and the lifestyle surrounding boating on the bay. Every issue of PropTalk is distributed at more than 850 carefully chosen and closely monitored locations throughout the Mid-Atlantic. PropTalk's coverage goes deep rather than wide, and the magazine celebrates the people, places, boats, personalities, and events that make the Chesapeake one of the world's premier boating grounds. Thanks for reading and supporting the Chesapeake Bay's Boating Magazine. We're back on Great Leap Radio. We are talking tides today with Captain Carl Weber of At The Helm. Carl is sharing some tips on dealing with tides uh, because many of us don't experience it until we're actually out there on the loop. So um, Carl, as we've, we've mentioned here in Charleston is one of the areas where we've got, you know, sometimes an eight foot swing between high and low tide. Because of that, the current can really be ripping. So you can be, uh, and we've had loopers report some, you know, very challenging docking here in Charleston. Um, give us some suggestions on, you know, when is the current moving fastest during the tide cycle and how should we time, you know, departures and arrivals at docks based on that? Okay. So at high tide, when it's changing at high tide, going down, and also when it's changing from low tide going up, those are the times that you get slack tide and ebb tide. That's when there's the least amount of current and the best time that you wanna to come to the dock unless you feel really comfortable docking your boat otherwise. So those are the optimal times, but that doesn't always work out good. Sometimes it's at 4 a.m. or 8 p.m. You might not wanna come in after dark. So. Obviously, you check those first. If you got a nice optimal time that you can come in, that's great. Otherwise, the best thing to do is try to put yourself in a position where you're docking into the current. You're facing into the current or into the wind so that you have the most control over your boat. And and that that is great advice. And even the very experienced captains um, in some of these areas do try to time their arrival for slack tide. Um, that slack current is really just makes it so much easier. Um, so what is a, a best resource that you've had or multiple resources um, for finding those tide tables, for getting some accurate information? Now, as you're planning your cruise for the next day and you know you're going from Georgetown to Charleston um, or Charleston mm -hmm. to Georgetown for that matter, um, you know, what's the best way to find an accurate tide time for both of those cities, both of those ports and figure out based on that, your start and end time for the day? Right. So um, there are several that I use. One is an app called Tides Near Me, uh -huh. and it works right off your phone. And you just put it, when you open it up, it goes, oh, it looks like you're near Savannah or you're near Charleston. And here's the closest place. And here's the tide. Here's high tide, low tide, whatever. So that helps a lot. I tend to be a big fan of Navionics and Navionics has a little weather thing on it that shows you which way the tides are going, which way the current's going, when it's the strongest, when it's the weakest. Obviously when you're coming off of ebb or slack tide, it's the least, but as it starts going out or starts coming in, it gets stronger and stronger for the first few hours. 
And then as it gets to almost high or almost low, obviously it slows down more. So great advice on how to figure that out. As far as, um, you know, if you can't time your arrival um, for slack current and, and, you know, trying to deal with coming somewhere mid in the cycle, you mentioned trying to dock with the current or with the wind. So you have a little bit more control. Um, are mo from your experience, are most of the marinas helpful in that? Meaning, are, you know, are they giving you a slip? Are they assigning you a spot where that's going to be easy versus hard, if that's make, if I'm explaining that correctly, but I understand you know, exactly here, what you're I know asking. a lot, you know, City Marina here in Charleston knows that at, at certain times in the cycle, transient boaters are going to have issues and they're very helpful in kind of directing you to a slip that's going to make it as easy as possible when that's available. Um, right. In other places, you know, I, I don't have that same direct experience. So how helpful are the marinas in, in managing that process for you when it's not the optimal time in the tide cycle? Most of those folks mean well mm -hmm. they're as helpful as they can possibly be but most of them do not operate boats they don't own boats they don't drive boats they don't know whether you have a single screw that works best clockwise or works best counterclockwise they don't know which way your prop walk is they don't know if you have bow thrusters or not they just assume everybody is an expert well we can't all be experts and even the experts still struggle when the wind's blowing the current's moving and they try to put you in a tight slip. So what I usually do when I come to a marina, every time, even the marinas I know, I go to the fuel dock first, I tie up, even if I don't need fuel. I go, what slip are you putting me in? And then I walk around to see, hey, is there a boat there with a dinghy hanging 10 feet out into the runway? Is there a boat with a big bow sprit? Is there a sailboat with a thing that sticks out six feet into the middle? That are, what are the pitfalls that I need to avoid? Which way is the current blowing? Is it blowing me into my slip? Is it blowing me out of my slip? Because those things all make it different. So if you can, a lot of times you can tell them, look, that slip's going to be really hard for me to get into. Can you put me into something where I can drive into the current into my slip? Or I can back into my slip and the current's helping me instead of fighting me. And a lot of them are happy to work with you you just have to let them know what you're working with. Hey, my boat doesn't turn counterclockwise well. I need a slip because the wind's going to push me this way that I can back into counterclockwise. That, that's really great advice, Carl. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, myself included, I don't want to look like a novice when they're coming in. Um, so it's really great to hear that you as a professional, when you can tie up at the fuel dock and check things out, first. Um, I don't see too many people who do that. And I think that would be a great thing for more of us to do in an unfamiliar marina. So I think that's great advice for loopers. And perhaps they'll feel comfortable doing that, knowing that some of the pros do that as well. So thanks for sharing that. Yes, ma'am. Um, one thing we haven't touched on at all is anchoring and how um, the tide will affect your scope um, and, you know, other factors as the boat. If you're a lake boater, you may not have experienced much of a swing when you're at anchor. Right. So tell us a little bit, you know, some, some tips for if you're planning on anchoring in a place with big changes in tides. Anchoring is the hardest thing you'll face because everybody's boat swings differently. Some boats are lighter and the wind blows one way, the currents come in a different way and their boats face in a different direction than yours because yours is bigger and heavier. Or maybe there's somebody bigger and heavier than you and their boat a sailboat swings to the current more than the wind because of the big rudder underneath and the keel where motor yachts 
not so much. They're more stuff above the water line, so the wind affects them more. So you have to look and see how big the anchorage is, how much room you have to work with, especially if you're in the ICW trying to anchor for the night and it's 100 feet wide, and there's not a whole lot of room to swing there without being right smack in the middle of the channel. So a lot of times people use a stern anchor to make sure that they stay forward and back. Uh, but obviously you want to make sure that you have good scope. Um, some people go with five to one, some seven to one. I happen to be old school. I like 10 to one. I sleep good at night. I don't have to worry. When you always check what the tide is going to be at the highest point, even if it's low tide now, there's seven feet underneath you. Seven times 10 is 70. But if it comes up eight feet, now your seven is 15 feet. And you need twice as much. You need 150 feet of scope out in order to stay and not pull your anchor loose. Some people say you can do less with chain because it's heavier. Obviously, you have to be considerate of the other people around you. But I prefer to be away from most of the other people. I know how to set my anchor and I sleep good at night. But I've been in places where other people didn't know how to set their anchor and wake up to them dragging down on you or somebody else. So I tend to like quieter places with fewer people. Mm -hmm. um, this is always a, a long topic, but any anchor alarms that you recommend? Um, you said you sleep well. Do you use an anchor alarm? And, and have you ever had it falsely go off during a tide change because the boat was swinging? I'm going to answer that in two ways. The one yeah. for me is, no, I don't use an anchor alarm. Mm -hmm. But when I anchor my boat, I, the trick to anchoring is to put your anchor down and either the wind is blowing your boat, the current's blowing your boat, or you're using your motors to lay the chain out so that it gets laid out in a line, not in a big pile right underneath the boat. Mm -hmm. That will never set. So you want to be moving in the direction of the wind or the current and lay the chain out in a nice long line when you get set up put your bridle on and then I back down on it at like 1500 or 2000 even 2500 rpms if it's got an engine that goes to that for a good solid 60 seconds and everybody's like well you'll pull your anchor out well if I pull my anchor out I'd rather do it now while I'm standing <laughs> at the helm at five o'clock at night I haven't had a you know some people like their sundowners so you hadn't had a sundowner at that time yet well the engine's still loose. running <laughs> i want it to come loose while i'm ready not at two in the morning when it's dark and it's raining and now i'm lost so that that's how i like to do it but i can tell you that i'm working with clients on a regular basis they like anchor alarms and it is an additional peace of mind the biggest problem with anchor alarms is most people think oh i put out 100 feet of chain and i should put 100 feet on my anchor alarm well, the problem is when your boat swings around 100 feet, now you're 200 feet from the spot where you were when you started, so your anchor alarm's going to go off. Right. So I've had several clients that got nervous, and, well, we're dragging, we're dragging. No, you're not dragging. You just set your alarm too short. Right. So, so make sure yes. you give it the appropriate <laughs> length of here's what our swing is going to be. Yeah, and it's, it is not pleasant to be awoken by an anchor alarm, um, particularly. Never. And and then you're sitting there in the dark trying to figure out, well, was it just the swing or are we actually dragging? Um, right. Obviously it's happened to me. <laughs> not, <laughs> to everybody, not fun, not fun. So um, oh, yeah, good information. 
Um, and then any other thoughts? We, you you kind of started all, us off with talking about um, how the tides would obviously affect you if you're at a fixed pier. Um, right. How often do you see those in the strong tidal areas on the Great Loop, first of all? Not sure what you're asking me, Kim. Well, uh, how much, how many, how often do you see a fixed pier versus a floating dock? You know, when oh, you're gosh. tying up with a looper, is it, is it a common thing, particularly where there's uh, big tide changes? It just depends on how new the marina is. It's way mm -hmm. more expensive to put in floating piers. They tend to be the more expensive marinas because they have floating piers. So right. if you're trying to save money and you're calling around for the least expensive place, you're probably going to have fixed piers. Um, obviously, as many marinas as can afford it have upgraded and they use floating piers when possible, which makes life much easier for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly so in strong tides. Um, yes. uh, but also, and, and I have not experienced this directly, but most loopers report that a lot of the free docks tend to be the fixed docks as well, absolutely. Um, not the floating docks. So certainly if you're trying to save money and on a budget and taking advantage of those free docks along the way, it's, it's often going to be a fixed dock. Um, so you mentioned leaving enough slack in your lines to account for that tide shift. So obviously yep. you need to know what state the tide's at when you arrive, but um, is there a way to calculate how much slack to leave in your lines based on what you're expecting the tide increase or decrease to be? Um, you know, how do you figure out exactly, okay, we're tied, we've got enough slack, we can go to sleep and sleep soundly? Right. So if you're side tied to a dock, you want to have one line that goes from the bow to the dock one line that goes from the stern to the dock and then you have two spring lines one that pushes you forward and or pulls you forward and one that pulls you back and those kind of keep you balanced the bow and the stern line keep you close enough to the dock so that you can get on and off the boat and the spring lines allow you to go up and down and not go too far if you're in a slip then you crisscross the stern lines and you still have spring lines and that's what kind of allows your boat to go up and down and not move too far from its current position. Okay. Um, so if you know that, you know, it's, it's mid tide right now and there's another three feet of water coming is, is do you leave three feet of slack or is there a different way to do that to ensure that you're not, you know, caught hanging there when the tide goes down or goes up? Right. Well, every boat's different. Some mm -hmm. of them have, lots of space between the water and the top gunnel and some of them have very little so that's mm -hmm. going to be something you kind of have to figure out on your own gotcha. but the best thing to do is you know when you get in make sure you check okay i'm at mid-tide in three hours or two hours you want to be checking and go okay how low am i going and do i have enough slack in my lines and then go okay when's high tide and then you check at high tide you go hey yeah we got plenty or we need a little more and that way, days two through seven, you go, hey, I'm comfortable. I checked it high. I checked it low. Mm -hmm. And I should be good for a couple of days while we're here. All right. Um, we're just about uh, out of our time. But any other tips that we haven't mentioned on dealing with tides or anything else loopers should know about the tidal areas of the route? Uh, the most important thing I would say is when you're going in an inlet, you want to make sure that the wind and the tide are going in the same direction. If the wind is coming from the east, and the tide is going out and you're on the east coast, it makes great big standing waves in those little inlets because all that water is trying to rush out and the winds blow in the opposite direction and it gets rough. If you pick the tide coming in and the wind coming in, it's great. It's at your back, smooth sailing. 
if the wind and the tide are both coming out, it'll be a little rougher, but nowhere near as bad as when they are against each other. So try to pick a time that whatever the wind is, if the wind is blowing from the west, you want to try to get an outgoing tide to go out that inlet. If you're trying to get in and the wind's coming from the east, you want to try to pick an incoming tide so that your ride in will be smoother. Great advice. Um, uh, you know, a lot of loopers expect some rougher weather on the big Great Lakes um, in the Gulf of Mexico. And often I hear from people in the worst conditions they encounter along the looper on the East Coast and some of those inlets um, based on the tide and, and wind conditions. So thank you for bringing that up. That's another great tip for how you can use the tides to your advantage uh, to avoid those bad days and, and ensure more of the good days if you pick your travel windows. So Carl Weber, Captain Carl Weber with At The Helm, thank you for joining us and sharing these tips. And thank you again for your AGLCA sponsorship. Thank you, Kim. It's my pleasure. And to those of us who have joined us today, thank you for listening or watching. We will be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising.